Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. However, we will also end up today in Mark chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 11. All right? I've been preaching shorter sermons the last few weeks. I intend to make it up to you today. Um, you're welcome. Uh, no, Mark 15, Mark 14, and 1 Corinthians 11. If you're the bookmark person, today is your day. All right, shine, sir, shine. All right, um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens in front behind me in just a second. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that's really, really simple. We believe that God uses his word for a number of really amazing, wonderful, lovely things. But the top tier of all the lovely things is that God uses his word to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about in your life to be shaped by knowing him, filled through the lens of knowing him and uh well just go chasing after him in the scriptures if you don't have a copy of of your own that you get to call yours take that physical one home it'll be one of the best parts of my day uh, the cowboys just barely squeaked out a win last night so i'm still riding high also i should go see the heart doctor so um uh so back in november back in november um we were working our way through a five-week series that we were calling Distinct Church. I don't know if you remember that. Some things have happened. Uh, we we'd covered four of those five weeks, and we were actually actively getting ready to uh, for the fifth week when all of life happened. And so uh, we needed to rightly needed to put that series aside for a while. All right, uh, but because of the way that God has just kind of created the calendar to work, there's always this weird, awkward Sunday in between Advent and Christmas celebration and New Year stuff. And so you're, every church staff member, every pastor, every you know, church leader is always going, what do we do with the weird week? Guess what we're going to do with the weird week? All right, we're going we're gonna to finish, close out a series that we didn't get a chance to close out. And so... Um, what better time to squeeze in a single, almost forgotten week of a series than the weird week? Um, so, so what do I mean by distinct church? I know it's, we've slept a lot since then. So what, what were we doing? What were we, what were we talking about? Well, here's the general premise. The local church is filled with people and with pictures and with a purpose that intentionally flow against the stream of the prevailing systems and worldviews that we found, find ourselves surrounded by. All right. That's what I mean by distinct church. Uh, that distinction, though, it does, it's not the product of, of any kind of, kind of uh, cultural antagonism. We're, we're not just hard-pressed against everything. We're, it's not coming through clenched teeth and white knuckles, uh, blindly refusing to go uh, with the flow. No, the distinctions of the local church are a beautiful, and I would argue, otherworldly uniqueness that naturally result out of a position change that God affects upon his people. All right? So what is that position change? I mean, it sounds like a big deal. What is it? Well, it's that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are brought through the grace of Jesus to spiritual life. That's the position change. That those who rightly and justly deserve the full and weighty wrath of God are instead saved. Not by any work that We've produced amongst ourselves, not, uh, but by the unfathomable mercy and, and, I would, and we would say charity of God. We are washed clean, the Bible teaches. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. 
And that position change causes us to value different things. It, it causes us to prioritize and pursue different things. It causes us to see and make sense of the world around us through the lens of Jesus' beauty and goodness. And when you see the world through the lens of Jesus' beauty and goodness, the scales change on how you evaluate and measure every other thing, Right? And so over the course of the series, and we looked at several things that flow out of that position change. Not only does the gospel kind of change our priorities in this world, but it changes our posture towards outsiders. And it changes how we kind of relate to each other as followers of Jesus within the church. And so several weeks ago, right before we shut things down, we looked at one of the ways that we illustrate the gospel to each other. And that illustration is called baptism. It was a good Sunday. Despite the cultural confusion that often surrounds it, baptism is actually not that complicated of a thing. Uh, The way that we like to articulate it here is to say that baptism is an outward picture of an internal reality, right? You've heard me say that a dozen times, that, that we have died to our sin and we have died to our old selves, but that we are being raised to newness of life. And that's why we dunk in, bring you back up. It's, it's a picture of something. It illustrates something about the gospel. Baptism as an empty thing is, is, is not good, right? It, 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 we try to... When we try to do too much with baptism, when we try to treat it as some kind of spiritual knob twisting to to dial in our effort to be pleasing to God, it's actually when we try to do way too much with baptism that we end up getting the gospel wrong because we're, we're illustrating the wrong thing. Baptism as an empty spiritual action is is not just worthless. I I made the argument a few weeks ago that it's worse worse than worthless because it's just another moment in a long list of self-righteous actions where you're trying to fix the problem yourself. But when baptism stands as a picture of the finished work of Jesus in your heart and life, well, that's when baptism becomes a gift from the Lord for your good. Right? That was week four. This week, I want to look at the other way the church has been given to illustrate the gospel to each other, the Lord's Supper. And if you thought baptism had some confusion swirling around it, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just like with baptism, it's been my experience that people tend to have a lot of kind of competing uh, and disparate ideas uh, about the subject and uh, about what the Lord's Supper is and about how we celebrate it and especially the purpose behind it. Um, and some of that confusion, some of that confusion comes from the reality that a lot of churches really just don't spend a lot of time clearly teaching what they actually believe about the issue. And, and some of that confusion comes from uh, just kind of this modern culture that we have uh, that where people have kind of syncretized views after hopping around to a bunch of different churches that practice it very differently and still don't teach it very clearly, right? That's kind of the way that that works. But unlike baptism, unlike baptism, uh, I think there's a lot of confusion around the Lord's Supper because the world has always been confused about the Lord's Supper. And I mean always. Uh, think about it. It's, it's a weird thing to do. We, we talk of eating the body and blood of Jesus. If, that, if anybody doesn't do a double take when they hear that, they probably need some professional help, right? Uh, they need to be checked on. It was incredibly common in the earliest days of the church for Christians to be accused of being cannibals by people on the outside passing around rumors. 
That wasn't uncommon at all. And so the Lord's Supper has always been a confusing thing to those outside the church, always. But what's, what makes it more complicated, though, is that it's, it, it's also been an incredibly confusing issue inside of the church. In fact, there's been a whole lot of blood spilled over the issue of the Lord's Supper. And I mean literally. During the 16th and 17th centuries, hundreds of Protestants in England were burned at the stake uh, by the Catholic Church for refusing to believe that the bread and wine were turned into the body and blood of Jesus by the hands of the priest. That, that, that was the, the threat. And, and so I know we live in a, in a land of nominal Catholicism, uh, but in case you stumbled in here uh, this morning and you're, you're somehow not familiar with the Catholic Mass, that, that, that's what they believe the priest does, right? And we talked last week about what a priest is, a mediator, a go-between between God and man. And so in the Catholic understanding of things, a priest is performing a mediatorial role. He's doing something for God and for the people. And that's why the Mass has specific words. There's a ritual that they're following. And, and by performing that ritual, the elements are converted into something else so that the people may receive them, right? Without the mediating action of the priest, the elements have no benefit. But as Protestants, we don't believe that that's even necessary. Actually, we don't even believe that's possible. We're not changing elements from one spiritual form to some other spiritual form. And there's, there's, there's no mediating role for some supposed clergy to play. Besides, I, last I checked, Jesus was a way better mediator than I could ever be. And so a few hundred years ago, during the English portion of the Protestant Reformation, hundreds of people were given the opportunity, we will call it, to recant their supposedly heretical belief, position, or else be executed. And hundreds of people thought that that was a hill worthy of dying on. Martyrs went to the flames, refusing to budge even just a little bit on something that Let's be real honest, a lot of people in our own day and age have never really been bothered to stop and think carefully about, right? If that question were offered to you today, believe this about the Lord's Supper instead of this about the Lord's Supper or else we will kill you. You ready to stand your ground on that? And so either, either those folks were loco Right? They were crazy. They were dogmatic lunatics who held too tightly to something that didn't actually matter. And therefore, they were silly to, to give up their lives for such a minor issue. Either they were crazy or, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something obviously important about the Lord's Supper, about all of this stuff, and, and our inability to see it actually stands as some kind of indictment against us. Maybe there's something about the Lord's Supper that truly matters, even if we haven't paid careful attention to it yet. So hypothetically speaking, what would that something be? Well, I happen to think that how we view the Lord's Supper actually tips our cards as to what we truly believe about the gospel. And I mean truly believe, functionally believe. It, it illustrates what we believe about the cross and what exactly Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, hypothetically. So in order to prove the point, we've got three texts this morning, but don't worry, I'm going to fly through them. It'll be fun. All right. 
in order for us to understand the distinction of the Lord's Supper in the context of the church, I think we first have to understand what the Lord's Supper is. And before we can rightly understand what the Lord's Supper is, I think we really, 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 really need to see the story that the Lord's Supper is supposed to illustrate. Okay? So, Mark 15. Mark 15. We're going to start in verse 16. Mark 15, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. We're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, if you didn't know. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemesebekthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. All right, so I know it's been a few weeks, but... Uh, we, we've spent all of our time in, in this distinct church series kind of discussing the unilateral change that God works upon his people, right? That, that, that was a one-direction change, meaning we don't accomplish our salvation. No, God saves a people for himself. Those are two very different understandings of the gospel. So we argue that there's no need to add any kind of man-made effort or man-made accomplishment back in to the gospel equation, right? Whether that effort is called baptism or the Lord's Supper or any other brand of spiritual knob twisting. God doesn't need any of those things to accomplish every single thing he intends to accomplish for you. Not a bit of it. Right? Oh, oh, but what about our need to live righteously before the Lord? Right? What about the expectation that God's people will live in glad obedience to his commands? I'm pretty sure I read some stuff about that one time in the Bible. Incredibly important things. Unimaginably important things. But neither one of those things are what reconcile someone to God. Period. 
Both of those things flow freely from or out of the heart of someone who has already been reconciled to God. Don't get them out of order. If you get the order of those things wrong, hear me, you get the gospel wrong. You cannot earn your salvation, nor can you maintain your salvation. But listen, saved people look a certain way. They live and think and operate as if they have been saved. When Jesus died on the cross to make payment for your sin, there was nothing, zero things before or after the fact, that then needed to be contributed by you. In theological terms, we, we would say that Jesus' work on the cross was an effectual work. Meaning, his death accomplished all of the things he intended to accomplish. And here in Mark 15, we see the specifics of how that effectual work actually played out. We see how the, the blood-bought grace of the gospel was actually secured for us? And the answer is with lots and lots of blood, right? I don't know if you noticed this, but the death of Jesus was an incredibly like, violent thing. The one who was perfectly innocent of sin was falsely tried. Right? He was mocked and he was beaten. He was spat upon. He was led around like some kind of circus show so that everyone in the mob could take their turn. He had his beard ripped out. He had the skin torn from his back and his shoulders. And then he was nailed to a wooden stake and raised up in the air and, <laughs> and left there to suffocate as the crowd continued to jeer. What a day. The death of Jesus was not a pretty scene. No way, no how. The wrath of God was poured out on him in full. The wages of sin is death, the Bible teaches, right? But Jesus didn't have any sin of his own. He didn't bring any of that to the moment. He didn't deserve to die like you and I deserve to die. The only person in all of history who was truly innocent. And so the Bible teaches that in that moment, the sins of his people were laid on him, right? 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, so, so what, 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 what does that mean, right? Well, it means that the one who was perfectly innocent of sin had the sins of his people accounted to him, credited to him, and he willingly accepted the wages that you and I deserved. But hear me clearly. You don't want to get the Bible wrong on this. Not part of the wages. All of the wages. His bloody death wasn't some down payment that got us 99.9% .9 of the way there. And you know we just add our little percentage of 1%. We just tap it in. Jesus didn't open a door and Jesus didn't create an opportunity. No, he died to make full, and hear me, final payment for your sin. Hebrews 10, but having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
There is no more sacrifice necessary because Jesus is the final sacrifice. Once is enough. But again, we live in the land of nominal Catholicism, right? If I'm going to be a faithful Bible teacher, I'm compelled to point this out. And I'm compelled to point this out because this stands in direct contrast to established Catholic teaching. In Catholic theology, Jesus is in a state of perpetually being sacrificed. Perpetually is the word that they use. If you've never noticed, there's a big difference between a Protestant cross and a Catholic crucifix. Our cross is empty because we believe that the work is over. Jesus doesn't still need to be hanging there anymore. For Protestants, the sacrifice of Jesus does not need to be experienced in some kind of repeated way. It doesn't have to be tapped into on some kind of regular basis. No, it is over. One might even dare to say it is finished. And because of that, it needs to be cherished. It needs to be remembered. Church, it needs to be rested in. So, so how does this understanding of the gospel affect what we believe about the Lord's Supper? Well, let's look at the build-up to this bloody moment. Flip back one chapter to Mark 14. Mark 14, we're going to start in verse 12. says this, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when, the sacrificed Pas- or when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the, uh, to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, um, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body, and he, t- uh, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is, my blood, uh, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. All right, so, so Jesus and his boys have traveled to Jerusalem. We're, we're in the week leading up to uh, the death and resurrection. And, and the city right now is just bursting at the seams. Uh, like just, just picture what's going on in, in, in Jerusalem right now. Uh, one, because it's the Passover. Like Everybody is in town right now for the Passover. If you're a good Jew, you better be in town for the holidays. And it's one of the holidays, culturally and religiously required. And so the city is bursting at the seams right now, population-wise, because everybody's in town. But not only is it bursting population-wise because uh, everybody's visiting once, it's, it's also bursting because this crowd is, uh, this growing crowd is kind of creating a bigger and bigger and bigger buzz specifically around Jesus, right? And Jesus has been giving them plenty to buzz over. 
All right. Uh, by this point in the story, Jesus and his crew have been in town for a few days already. His reputation had already preceded him. He had already had a crowd of people following him around. The stories were big. The stories were awesome. All right. uh, but Jesus had also done a couple of things to kind of add some more fuel to the fire. For one, he drove a bunch of people out of the temple. Like, you think they noticed? Think that made the news? He's been teaching in a way that openly challenged all the religious authorities. They're trying to stump him. He keeps making them look bad. Jesus is creating more and more buzz here. It's pretty clear that Jesus is picking a fight, and everybody in this massively swelling town is watching it happen. And so things are getting more and more and more crowded and more and more and more tense as the week progresses. But now, now it's time to get things ready for the Passover, the main event, the reason why everybody's here right? Baked into the history uh, and the identity of the Jewish people is a millennia and a half uh, old celebration of God rescuing his people out of bondage. If you're new to the Bible and not familiar with the story of the Passover, it plays out in the, uh, in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. Uh, you know the Charlton Heston movie? Um, God is going to finally break the back of Pharaoh and remove his people from slavery in Egypt. And he does so through the plagues. But while all the plagues are intense on their own, plagues numbers one through nine are just small time fair compared to plague number 10. God is going to kill the firstborn son in every single household in Egypt. No house will be spared. Even the firstborn among the cattle, we're told, will die. But God is also a God of grace and provision. And so he commands the Israelites to gather together with their families. He commands them to slaughter a spotless lamb and to eat that lamb as their food for that night. He tells them to paint that lamb's blood on the, the lintels of their doorposts and a, as, a, as a sign that, that they had trusted in God's promise to protect them from his right judgment over sin. And in doing so, the angel of death would pass over, ding, 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 he would pass over them at the sign of the Lamb's blood. Israel's job was to obey the Lord and wait patiently for him to do all that he said he was going to do. And that's what they did. They obeyed. God sent the final plague and Moses marches Israel out of town. Fast forward a month, God has rescued them out of that slavery, just like he said he would. He crossed them safely through the Red Sea. He calls them to gather at the foot of Mount Sinai to give them the law. And again, do not get the timeline wrong. Salvation from bondage precedes the expectation of a life of obedience. Don't get the timeline wrong. You get the order wrong on that story, you get the story of the Exodus wrong. But as a part of the law, God also commands them to remember. He commands them to remind themselves of that one-time sacrifice each and every year. He commands them to repeat that meal. Not because the angel of death was coming back. It was over. It was finished. No, he commanded them to remember that they were already rescued. That they were already provided for. He gave them a tactile picture to help them never forget of what God had seen fit to do. And that is the meal. Church, that is the meal that Jesus and his followers are getting ready to eat in Mark 14. And in verse 22, we're told that Jesus commandeered 
this ancient celebration. Okay, but, but why? Why would he do that? Like, because a spotless lamb was, again, headed for the slaughter. And just like God's people in Exodus on the backside of God's gracious rescue, we are called to trust his promise. To continually remind ourselves that his work to save us is in fact complete. It's complete. And so Jesus picks up some unleavened bread, right? We know the story. We've read it, we've celebrated it. You can picture it. Jesus picks up some, some unleavened bread, something that every Jewish person in that room would have immediately associated with an absence of sin. They all understand what the picture is. <laughs> then Jesus makes this astonishing claim. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. There were a bunch of people in that room that spent an awful lot of time with Jesus. Like a lot of them. There were a bunch of people in that room who could have called him out on the claim of sin, uh, sinlessness if he had actually been guilty of sin. But they didn't do that. Nobody spoke up. They understood the claim. They validated the claim. After the bread, Jesus picked up a cup and said, this is the new covenant of my blood. The meal that they had originally gathered to celebrate that night. It was the first stage of the old covenant. The spotless lamb of the Passover was the very first sacrifice of a sacrificial system to come. Jesus reroutes that ancient remembrance for the Jews and he turns it into something far more cosmic, right? This spotless lamb was going to do a lot more than just save his people from some kind of physical slavery. But why all the trouble, though? Like, like, why would Jesus commandeer an old Jewish custom for what he was getting ready to do? Well, a few weeks ago, we saw that we needed the simple picture of baptism uh, for helping us comprehend and even cling to the massive reality of what Jesus had already accomplished on our behalf. That that's, what was, that what, that's what baptism was for, right? This week is no different. Jesus, again, gave us an incredibly simple picture. An incredibly simple picture. Okay, but why? Because I need simple. So do you. He understands our frame. I need pictures. I need rhythms that call my attention back away from myself and back away from the things that I think are my biggest problems right now. I think we're all inclined to fall back into old habits and of, of belief that, that we are somehow responsible for things. That we are the ones in charge of cleaning ourselves up or positioning ourselves rightly. King Jesus proves his goodness by giving his people a regular tactile reminder of truths that are way, way bigger than us. According to the Bible... The Lord's Supper is not something that we participate in in order to charge up on grace. And it's not something that we participate in to add to our treasury of merit to be enjoyed later. No, it is a good and simple gift from the Lord to remind us that his work is indeed sufficient. That we don't need to add our peace. It's an external picture of the internal reality that he saves a people for himself unilaterally. 
in spite of our sin-filled insufficiency. It's a reminder that our role is to rest in his provision and to trust him to finally fulfill all that he said he would fulfill. Which is why we always want to be really, really, really careful to never heap a bunch of extra things onto that remembrance. We want to approach the Lord's Supper with a reverent heart. We want to approach it with true repentance before the Lord, but at the same time to to try and adorn that moment with a bunch of kind of religious decoration or a bunch of moving parts that that shift our focus away from God's work to any kind of personal kind of action of uh, actions of performance. Like, well, that completely misses the point, right? We're not performing anything. The Lord's Supper is about resting from performance. Pretense gets the picture very, very wrong. We're reminding ourselves in that moment that only the spotless lamb can take care of our problem. That only the spotless lamb can free us from the bondage of sin. And, it, and to turn the Lord's Supper into something that, that we are somehow achieving, whether it's intentional or not. If, if, if the picture we paint is that we're accomplishing something, well then what we're doing is we're giving an incorrect illustration of the gospel in that moment. And this church this is why some folks were willing to be burned for this they didn't go to their deaths clinging to some lesser known dogmatic point that didn't really matter they were clinging with their very lives to the belief that jesus's work alone and not their spiritual performative actions are what saved them The threat against them was to confess a different gospel or be burned. And knowing exactly what that meant, they refused to budge even an inch. We preach the gospel. And then through the picture of the Lord's Supper, we illustrate the gospel. And so the question emerges, well, who is the gospel illustration for? And that's where our last text for the morning comes into play. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. i got to move faster. Let's go. All right. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together, uh, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order for that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. All right, so the church at Corinth was a mess. I don't know if you know this. We, we talked about Corinth a lot in here. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, they, they had a lot of really good things going on. They were young, they were bright, they were smart, but all those really good things uh, were overshadowed by all of their problems, and they had a big old mountain of problems. They were prideful, they were selfish. That prideful selfishness kind of produced a number of other dumb, sinful things going on. Uh, there were factions within the church, petty little differences, and, and people were fighting over stuff. Different groups were posturing themselves against each other. There was an open justification of sinful behaviors coming even from the leadership of the church. It was an absolute dumpster fire, right? And Paul has been addressing those things all letter long, right? We're in, we're in chapter 11, but when we finally make it to chapter 11, he brings up another issue. He's hearing reports that whenever the church is celebrating the Lord's Supper, folks are rushing to the table. 
Like they're just, they're just absolutely going for it. All right? And so um, they're rushing to the table and they're eating everything there. It seems, it seems that they're doing so to even try and prevent some other people from the other factions in the church from getting any. Like that's a good church, right? It's a low moment. One dude's getting drunk on all the wine. Like whatever, whatever bad church stories you've got, Corinth still takes home the medal. They're a mess. It's obvious. And so Paul says, hey, you, you may call whatever it is you're doing the Lord's Supper, but that's not a good moniker. Because whatever that is, is not the Lord's Supper. And so put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second. Like, you're the apostle who's got to sort this stuff out. What do you say? How do you begin to address that nonsense? Well, Paul points, to, points them to the humble posture that Jesus originally set the Lord's Supper up in. He, he tells the story again, and he highlights the humility of Jesus. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other thing, not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. All right. So, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, uh, we had kind of three distinct audiences for baptism. Right? Do you remember what they were? Uh, you got yourself. You got friends and family. You got the church. Right? And guess what? We have three distinct audiences for the Lord's Supper as well. And the first one is obvious. The, the illustration is for you. It's for you. Like when we take these elements together, like we're call, when we call you to, to contemplate in that moment, it is an incredibly personal gospel need that we want you to lean in. All right? Follower of Jesus, your sin was paid for. Like don't generalize this. Don't, don't turn this into kind of the vague idea of the world's sin. No, your sin had a price. Your sin had a cost. It was a violent price tag for Jesus. And he paid it. He paid it. Paul says, examine yourself. Judge yourself truly. But listen, I've, I've found, this has just been my experience in church life, I've found that a lot of people derail themselves when they get to that idea. Um, a lot of people think that some sin in their life disqualifies them from the Lord's Supper. Uh, but that, that, you know, that they've messed up too much this week, and because they've messed up too much this week, they need to get some things figured out first, right? But listen, if, if the Lord's Supper is meant to illustrate the gospel, then that's a bad illustration, right? 
that picture argues that you have to earn it first. So that can't possibly be the picture. It's not your sin that disqualifies you. No, your sin necessitates this. But there is something that can disqualify you. There's absolutely something that can disqualify you. Hear me clearly. A failure to repent makes you unfit for this meal. Completely unfit. A clinging to your sin instead of a clinging to your Savior does make you unqualified. And that's why churches should never allow someone in disciplined care to knowingly participate in the Lord's Supper. They're, it's because they're actively involved in, in a pattern of public sin, of, in refusing to repent of that public sin, right? We can't do much about the unknown private sin. That's on you, and it's between you and Jesus. But when the sin is public, the church should never allow that person to participate. It's illustrating the wrong thing. It's not being mean or anything. It's about accurately illustrating what Jesus does for repentant sinners. It's about protecting the unrepentant one from judgment. Because Paul says here that because they had not judged themselves rightly, that God seems to have brought judgment upon them. Did you catch it? It says that, some, that many were sick and some had even died. That's a, that's a big warning. I would argue that it is a clear weakness of the modern evangelical church to just gloss over that warning as if it could never happen here. Paul is serious. He calls Christians to judge themselves rightly. Repentance matters. It matters. But when we evaluate ourselves truly, when repentance is real and our trust in Jesus' payment for our sin is remembered and rested in, church, this meal is for you. And no screw-up in your week can undo that. Yes, you've messed up this week. Me too. So we cling all the more tightly to the goodness and the grace of our Savior. So the first audience for this picture is you. It's personal. But, it, but listen, it's not only personal. It's not merely personal. There's a second audience. Those who are outsiders. Those who are not Christians yet. We try to make it clear here whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper that these elements are for Jesus' people. And if you're not one of Jesus' people yet, then they're not for you. You, just, you need to abstain, period. There's nothing magical about them. There's nothing being hidden. They're crackers and juice, right? If you're really hungry after we're done, I'll give you the leftovers. You can have them. Don't need them in the church kitchen. But for those who belong to Jesus... These bits of crackers and juice symbolize something way bigger and way more eternal than crackers and juice. I said a few weeks ago that baptism as an empty spiritual action wasn't just worthless, it was worse than worthless. And the reason for that is because baptism without a relationship with Jesus is a sweet spiritual affirmation of something you don't actually have. A spiritual action all by itself can never save someone. Because rather than illustrating Jesus' work on your behalf, it instead gives you some kind of false and, I would argue, damnable hope uh, uh, in yourself and your ability to check off all the spiritual boxes. And what was true of baptism is just as true of the Lord's Supper. To take these elements when you don't actually know Jesus, when you haven't, had, haven't actually placed your faith in Him, listen, it is worse than worthless. Whether you do the spiritual action for yourself or to try to impress someone else, it doesn't matter. Jesus sees the heart. Jesus judges the heart. And Jesus knows what's really going on inside of you. 
So how then do non-Christians participate in this meal? Well, you participate by watching. You participate by watching. Um, we, we want to show you who it is that we place our trust in. Confidently so. The one who died on our behalf and to, uh, the one who came to make full and final payment for our sin and to reconcile us to himself. We want to show off who he is and what he's done to you. But listen, not, not only do we want to show you what Jesus has done for us, we, we want you to know him too. Like real bad. You can meet him this morning. He calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to, to turn away from your sin, and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. You can respond to Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's sit down and talk sometime. But there's a third audience for the Lord's Supper. You got yourself, you got the outsider. Third audience is the gathered church. The gathered church. Everyone in Corinth was rushing to the table, taking more than they needed, boxing other people out. But the, the culture of a healthy church moves in the other direction than those things. Right? We come to the table slowly, judging ourselves rightly, looking to serve one another. Taking these elements at all illustrates something important, but the way that we take these elements also illustrates something important. It illustrates our love for one another. And that's why in verse 33, Paul says, wait for one another, right? We're not aiming for efficiency. We're not aiming for some kind of novel or creative twist to get people intrigued about what we're doing. We're aiming for remembrance and rest. We're aiming for accurately telling the story of what the gospel has done. We're aiming for a gentle and tactile moment for all the weak-framed Jesus people in our church family to go, yeah, yeah, he's still good. I still need him. As a follower of Jesus, how can we respond this morning? We respond with the continual picture that Jesus gave us for our good. Picture that reminds us of what he is joyfully doing and that we could never, ever, 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 ever do for ourselves. So let's pray and Jeff is going to come lead us. Father, thank you for scripture and our text this morning. Thank you that you have provided all that is necessary to be provided. That you gave your son a son who came and put on flesh and dwelt among us, but also came to die and be raised again. To those in here who know you, would you help us remember your finished work this morning and rest in that work rather than trying to contribute our peace? Call us to real repentance before we come, but also to trust your grace. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you call them to yourself even in this moment? Would true repentance happen in light of your grace? We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.